because it starts small and then it keeps growing, you see the discrimination starting. And it's vicious. And it may not sound vicious to a white person, but to me and my husband, it really is troubling. Because then we remember what happened to us. This is Legacy, stories from older generations for insight into the world today. I'm Michelle Harbin. I remember in high school learning about the way Japanese Americans were treated during World War II. A deep mistrust spread throughout the country, and the people who had been in the community were suddenly not seen as American. It's a dark spot in our history, something we as a nation don't talk about often. But then it came rushing back into the American conscience. On the day of the 74th anniversary of the Pearl Harbor attack, Donald Trump made his first call for a Muslim ban. He was still a presidential candidate. The next day, he went on ABC with George Stephanopoulos and defended his call with history. What I'm doing is no different than what FDR... FDR's solution for Germans, Italians, Japanese... So you're for internment camps? I've got, I've got, I've got to press you on that, sir. So you're you're praising FDR there. I take it you're praising the setting up of internment camps for Japanese during World War II. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. You know, they stripped them of their naturalization proceedings. They went through a whole list of things. They couldn't go five miles from their homes. I mean, you know, take a look at what FDR did many years ago, and he's one of the most highly respected presidents by. I mean, respected by most people. They named highways after him. You want to bring back policies like that? No, I don't want to bring it back, George, at all. I don't like doing it at all. It's a temporary measure. It's an extreme example of how our country handled being at war, juggling protection and prejudice. As a nation filled with other cultures and ethnicities, we navigate this dilemma at almost every historical turn. And the impact otherness has on our policies, that's complex and real. Now, how we as a country handle otherness again takes hold of our narrative. It's this moment that Um, led me to Mary. So could I have you say uh, your name if you're comfortable with it, your age? Okay. My name is Mary Tamaki Murakami. And I was born on June 3rd, 1927. Oh, and so I'm 90 years old. (laughs) For people who can't do the math. (laughs) Mary has silver white hair. She's elegant and laughs easily. I met with her in her Maryland home, where she lives with her husband. Both of them were forced into internment camps during the war, although not in the same one. And only Mary talks about her experience openly. He says... He's not vocal like I am. (laughs) Mary is vocal. She talks with schools and organizations about her experience because she doesn't want to see history repeat. All Japanese-American communities are concerned about the Muslims because we see the same pattern that we went through. We had yellow journalism, which started, and now the press... You see it in the papers, and then you see it in the people. And it's the same way 
And so that's why we feel that we should try to encourage the Muslims that eventually it will pass, but it is a difficult time for them. So our civil rights, Japanese American civil rights groups are fighting for to keep them out of camp. An equivalent to an internment camp? Yeah, because if you go back to the history of Japanese Americans in the United States, it's very similar. At dawn of this island paradise, warplanes of the most treacherous of enemies savagely and without warning shatter the peace of almost a century. America has been attacked without warning. And throughout the nation, the news is flashed. It's war. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Mary was 14 years old, living in a San Francisco neighborhood called Japantown, when Pearl Harbor was attacked by the Japanese military. My father was at church, and we ran down there and said, there is a war, you were right. And he says, no, I said that, but I never thought Japan would be stupid enough to go to war with the U.S. And it took until that night for him to actually believe that Japan would go to war with the U.S. And what made him finally believe it was it became very quiet in San Francisco. And so we looked out the window and there was no traffic going down Post Street, which is one of the main arteries for us. So we looked up towards the top of the hill coming into Japantown, and we could see the U.S. Army surrounding us. That afternoon, the FBI was already picking up people that they thought would be enemies of the U.S., like uh, anybody who did business with Japan, our Japanese school teachers, even uh, all Buddhist priest, anybody who had any dealings with Japan, even if they had never been to Japan or any connection. Two months later, President Roosevelt issued Executive Order 9066. The order established military zones in the U.S. called the Western Defense because it encompassed nearly the entire West Coast. This was where the federal government had the power to imprison anyone it deemed dangerous. In that order, it didn't even call us citizens anymore. They said anybody of Japanese ancestry, aliens and non-aliens. And when we saw non-aliens, we knew we had lost all our rights as U.S. citizens. Milton Eisenhower, brother of President Dwight Eisenhower, was put in charge of the War Relocation Authority, a group created to govern the camps. Milton Eisenhower would also produce a government film to justify the detention centers. When the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, 
our west coast became a potential combat zone. Living in that zone were more than 100,000 persons of Japanese ancestry, two-thirds of them American citizens, one-third aliens. We knew that some among them were potentially dangerous. Most were loyal. But no one knew what would happen among this concentrated population if Japanese forces should try to invade our shores. Military authorities therefore determined that all of them, citizens and aliens alike, would have to move. The executive order never mentioned an ethnicity, but it soon became clear how it was being interpreted by military leaders. And then the next instructions were curfew notices. The curfew didn't mince words. It prohibited people of Japanese ancestry to leave their homes between 8 p.m. and 6 a.m., and at all other times to not be more than five miles from their home. It was first in miles, which meant my sister was working out of town, so she had to come home because my parents said if it's in miles, it'll get closer. And sure enough, the miles got close enough that my father, who was doing day work, he couldn't go to work anymore. And my brother, who was in high school, couldn't go to high school. The curfew became so strict, they could only stray a couple of blocks. Mary couldn't go to school any longer, and many had to stop going to work. They were told to get vaccinated and were just waiting to be taken. Because the government wasn't talking directly with the community, all they could do was imagine what would happen. And Mary's parents started preparing. My parents believed that the children were going to be put in one camp and the parents in the other. And that seemed logical to them. So what they did is they went to a photographer and had a picture taken of themselves. And they had five prints made and gave it to each of us children. And they told us our family history just in case something like that would happen. And then the final instructions for people of Japanese ancestry went into effect. You could only take what you could carry, but they said you had to bring your bedding and utensils to eat with. So those were picked up by the government. Finally, it became time for us to leave. And being a teenager in those days, we used to uh, clip certain favorite movie stars, pictures and things like that. And my younger sister and I decided we would pack those in our suitcase. But when it came to reality, we kept packing things and then realized what we really should pack is clothes. So then out they went. The adults were dealing with much greater sacrifices, their homes. At that time, laws in Western states prevented first-generation immigrants from owning land. It was adopted in other states during the war at the height of anti-Japanese sentiment in a direct attempt to keep Japanese Americans from settling. And it meant that Mary's parents had to wait until their children, who were born on American soil, turned 21 to buy property. So without a place to store their things until the war was over, Mary's father, like many other families, tried in vain to keep their possessions safe. My father was in charge of the First Reformed Church in San Francisco. We had the uh, social hall 
and so they took tape and divided up the space. So say this room would hold about four or five families' possession. Most of these shared spaces where families tried to protect their belongings were scavenged. I would say over 90% of the space that stored Japanese-American things were broken in before the war was over. And at our particular church, there was a playground outside the social hall. And what they had done was taken apart the swing set. In those days, they were made of metal. They took the top of the swing set, used it as, as a ramming rod, and broke the doors into that area. And that's how they got into our area. And so after the war, my father and I went back to see what had happened. And it was just one big heap. They had taken everything. But my father had put my sewing machine there because I told my father that was my most valuable thing. And I opened it up and they had taken the machine and just left the shell. And they took everything. So when we came back from the war, there was nothing. Before the government finished the camps for the prisoners, they dropped them off at what they were calling assembly centers. Thankfully, most families were not separated, and Mary was taken with her parents. There were 16 assembly centers throughout the Western Defense, mostly on fairgrounds and racetracks. Mary's family was sent to the Tamforan racetracks in California, with around 8,000 others. Families were put in hastily cleaned horse stalls to live. If the families were small enough, more than one were put in a single stall. By the time Mary's family of seven got there, the horse stalls had been filled. So they built these temporary barracks in the inner track, and we had a room there. And all the government put was seven cots, army cots, straight along, and that's where we stayed. They used the uh, grandstand underneath to feed us. There was no formal education, and there was a community shower and toilets. And for entertainment, we would run around the racetracks in the morning. So there was all these people running around the racetracks. And then if you got tired, you went up on the grandstand and watched people running around the race. And then uh, someone had donated books. And so they took a big portion of one barrack and made it into a library. And so my sister had decided, I decided we would read every single book in this library. But by the time we had finished B, I think, Topaz was ready. The 10 camps were ready. Mary's family were kept in the assembly center for about six months until they were relocated to Camp Topaz in Utah. All the internment camps were in out-of-the-way spots in the desert, but it had to be close enough to roads or train tracks to be able to transport thousands of people there. Topaz was near a town called Delta, and there was railroad tracks to Delta. But the only problem, they didn't have the trains. And so they dragged out these trains, these old, old trains, and put us on there. And the army guarded us all the way to Topaz. 
And whenever we went through towns, they made us pull down the shade so no one would know they were transporting us out of California to our permanent camps. Mary's sister, Lily, was sent to Topaz first, and she scouted out two small rooms for their family. There was 12 barracks in each block, and in the center of the barracks, they had a common latrine, a common laundry room, and common showers, and those toilets were, I guess the army built it, or whoever built it, put toilets and showers facing each other. But the problem was they put partitions between each toilet, but there was no doors. So being a teenager, it was very upsetting, but they fortunately put three rows of toilets. So the last row had to face a wall. <laughs> so all of us teenage girls, whenever we went, we would go to the last toilet <laughs> against the wall. Whereas our parents by that time didn't care. They used the main part, and they did the showers the same way. So some woman was kind enough to donate a sheet, and so we all <laughs> took advantage of that sheet and used that. Although they were prisoners, the adults were being paid 12 to $19 a month to work in the camps. The average salary at this time was around $115 a month. The camp prisoners were doing everything, from being a teacher to cook to, surprisingly enough, guard. The guards inside the camps were our parents. They would guard because the soldiers were afraid to come into the camps at night. Why were they afraid, though? Because they didn't know what would happen, because there wasn't, you know, street lights or anything. And there's 9,000 enemies, so-called enemies, in the camps. So they were afraid to come in. So the guards at night were Japanese-Americans. Being a teenager in the camp brought its own special challenges. Our parents heard that we were getting so Americanized that we were having these dances and these rumors that boys and girls were dancing really close and everything, you know, everything they could imagine. So they sent in their guards and the guards came in, and dances were in mess halls or rack halls, and all they had was bare bulbs, and so we would put bags around them or paper to darken it a little, so they came and took off all the things so it would be brighter, and then we would start dancing. And they came in with a ruler, and they measured the distance between the boys and the girls, and if you were dancing too close, they reported us to our parents. <laughs> so it was just like being on the outside. Yeah, just like being. <laughs> but of course, more serious conflicts were happening in the camp. Was there ever rumblings of a revolt in the camps? Only when question 27 and 28 came up. And that was early on? Yes, in uh, 43. The government sent out a sheet of questions with the intent of finding out who was loyal and who was not. It later became known as the Loyalty Questionnaire. There was a time in camp 
when they decided to question our loyalty again. And I, I always felt since we went into those camps with no problems, whatever the government said, because we were raised like that by our parents, that whatever the government said was correct. So we went into the camps. And then after we were there, the government decided that they would question our loyalties. So they sent out this long questionnaire. And there was two questions in that questionnaire that caused trouble. Question 27 and 28 caused the greatest upheaval. There was rioting because the first question, uh, the 27 was, are you willing to serve in the U.S. Army? Uh, anyone over 17 had to answer these questions. The problem was, it looks like a simple question and that any Japanese American would say yes. But someone wrote that if you, if you give me back my civil rights, I'm more than willing to serve. And the government said that's a no answer. If any men said yes, would they have been recruited? Yeah, my brother said yes. And so, first of all, the ones that said yes, the older ones decided to volunteer. And they went into the army because the army was the only armed forces that were allowing Japanese Americans in, not the Navy, not the Marines or the Coast Guard. And there was a group that said, we should be loyal and go even if they don't give us our civil rights back. And so there were clashes. And then there was question 28. Question 28 caused a lot of grief to our parents because it said, do you forgo any loyalty to the Japanese emperor and pledge all loyalty to the U.S.? Well, by law, anybody who was born in Japan could not become a U.S. citizen, so it would have left them with no country. The people who answered no to both these questions became nicknamed the no-nos, and there were consequences for them. Because if you said no-no on those forms, you were taken out of those camps and put into Thule Lake, and they set up a jail system and everything there. National fear and questions of loyalty, they're a familiar theme today. Nearly half of Americans believe at least some American Muslims are anti-America, according to the Pew Research Center. But what kind of psychological effect can this have on a marginalized group? For the larger internment camp, it created resentment. But for Mary as a child? Having this discrimination and your loyalty questioned, did it ever make you want to prove your loyalty? Or did it just make you angry? It didn't make us angry because we weren't taught that. We were, since we were always taught the government is right. And if you were unhappy because you lost everything, your parents would use these Japanese terms, which would say, you put up with things. And then they would use another word that would tell you, these things happen and you have no control over it, so make do with what you have. And so you have to persevere under any condition. 
And if you don't, things aren't going to get better. And if you're raised like that, then you have a complete different attitude. You don't feel dissatisfied with things. If you are dissatisfied with something, you go and fix it. So it wasn't things are happening to me. It was I have the power to make things happen. Yeah. And Mary did. She kept up her education all through being held in an internment camp. Since I couldn't take higher math that I was hoping to take, my father found an engineer in camp and he taught me higher math and how to use the slide rule and everything. And after almost four years of being inside that camp, the war was coming to an end. They were pushed out of the camps with a one-way ticket anywhere and as many army blankets as they could carry. Families had to pick up their lives and start over with no money and no home. While at camp, Mary applied and was accepted into University of California, Berkeley, in the microbiology program. But college didn't mean a cure from the internment's lasting effects. After the war, most of us could not find any place to buy or rent. And no one had the money to buy. We had the age to buy but we didn't have any money because we had been in those camps for three and a half years. And I decided to quit Cal then because I felt that I should help the family. So I got uh, this job where they candled eggs. You stay in a dark room for eight hours and you grade eggs manually. Sorry, you graded eggs? Yeah, in those days, now it's all modernized, but you're talking about the 40s in the United States. We had a bare bulb in front of us. We were in a dark room, this older woman and I. We would pick up four eggs at one time and put each one in front of the light, and then we would grade the eggs by the airspace on top, and they were grade A's went here, grade B's went there, and if they were moldy inside, you would crack them in this can. And that's what they used at bakeries in those days. Rotten eggs. <laughs> and I did that job until my father said uh, he got a job working for this family. So he said I could go back to school. The last internment camp closed in 1946. Around 120,000 Japanese Americans were eventually released from all 10 camps. It's important to note that no Germans or Italians were held in mass incarceration, although America was also at war with these countries at the time. 42 years later, President Reagan issued a formal apology for the internment camps, recognizing they were discriminatory and based off fear, attempting to right the wrongs of our past and setting the record straight. He signed the Civil Liberties Act which granted reparations for those interned in the camps. Thank you all very much. More than 40 years ago, shortly after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, 120,000 persons of Japanese ancestry living in the United States were forcibly removed from their homes and placed in makeshift internment camps. This action was taken without trial, without jury. It was based solely on race for these 120,000 were Americans of Japanese descent. 
Yes, the nation was then at war, struggling for its survival, and it's not for us today to pass judgment upon those who may have made mistakes while engaged in that great struggle. Yet we must recognize that the internment of Japanese Americans was just that, a mistake. Legacy is produced by me, Michelle Harvin. Remember to subscribe to keep up to date on all our episodes. Check out my Twitter, at Michelle Harvin, to find all the links and to see some cool extra stuff like pictures and videos of our incredible storytellers. Or you can go to LegacyThePodcast.com to see all that and more. Logo design by Elise Harvin, tech by Chris Herbert, and thanks to everyone who has helped in one way or another. Thanks for listening, and remember to tune in next week. You don't want to miss it.